Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Football with uh, me, Gary Lineker. Um, I'm afraid my two co-hosts are serving a one podcast ban after another swearing episode um, just recently. So uh, what I thought I'd do is give you something slightly different um, this week. So I've got someone joining me today. He's a, a, a journalist. He works in Spain. Um, he writes for The Guardian, amongst other things, and hosts one of, I have to say, one of my favourite um, podcasts, The Spanish Football Podcast. It does what it says on the tin. A warm welcome to Sid Lowe. Sid, this is a, a little bit different for us. It's it's normally the other way around. You've, you've interviewed me numerous occasions. I don't know how long it's going to take. What, what are you going to ask me? Better not be difficult. It's it's where you, you your expertise lies oh. in Spanish football. So I want to talk about, obviously, um, the arrival of Jude Bellingham. I want to talk about um, the emergence of a, a possible young superstar in Lamine Yamal. I want to talk about Spanish coaches and why they're so successful in, in English football. I want to talk about Spanish players. I want to talk what happened at Barcelona. I want to talk about Messi and what happened there. So there's there's lots to go at, Sid, and you there's are plenty, exactly yeah. the right bloke. Good. That's that's pleasing. Thank you. I'd like to start with um, Jude Bellingham, actually. Um, mm-hmm. You're out in there, Spain. You watch more Spanish football matches than any other person probably on the planet. He's obviously emerged once again as this um, incredibly talented young player. Everyone's getting very excited uh, here in England and um, he's had a terrific start at, at Real Madrid. Are they as excited about him there as we are here? Yeah, I mean, that's the really striking thing. Absolutely, they are. Uh, I think there's a sense that he surprised everyone. Now, obviously, look, that... That comes with the numbers. That comes with the fact that he's scoring uh, loads of goals. He's top scorer in Spain at the moment. He was officially player of the month in the first month in, in La Liga. But I think it's also about the character and the personality. Now, these things that we've talked about a bit in England before, but that have re- been really striking in these opening weeks in Spain, that this is someone who signs for Real Madrid at 19, is still only 20, and is playing with an authority, with an assuredness that that I think nobody anticipated. We're not just talking about, you know, good player turns up at a good club and takes control. It's player turns up at Real Madrid and takes control and appears to have a degree of leadership and hierarchy at arguably the biggest club in the world, almost certainly the biggest club in the world, and doesn't seem remotely bothered by it. Now, I think obviously you have to be careful with words like remotely bothered by it because I think there is an awareness from him that this club is huge. And I think the things that he says tells you that he's trying to make sure he expresses that respect for Real Madrid at the same time as having, if you like, no respect at all for the enormity of it, not feeling at all overall by it. And that's been the most striking thing. And I know it's a cliche, but everybody keeps coming back to that. That one statistic that stands out above all else is 20. This guy is only 20. This shouldn't <laughs> be happening He's a child. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, more or less. I mean, he's certainly um, ahead of his years in, in terms of maturity. But it's like you said, Sid, isn't it? He's, he's a real leader on the pitch. And he's, he's got this kind of presence that, that true greats will have. And it's early in his career. As you said, he's only, he's only just turned 20. So uh, there's a long way to go and things can happen in football, as, as we well know. But I mean, he looks an absolute banker to be a world superstar if he's not already. 
Yeah, and the debate, I was actually talking to a colleague, a Spanish colleague this afternoon, and, and he already dared to utter those words. And I must admit, my head was in my hands, but at the same time, I thought, you might not be wrong. And he, he uttered the words ballon and door. And I just thought, right, are we, are we, have we already begun this one? Now, obviously in Spain, you know, I don't know how many of the listeners will be aware of this, but it's a real obsession, the ballon d'or here, even more so in England than it has been for a, for a very long time. But I think there is the sense that this is genuinely a special player. Now, I'm always a little bit reluctant to project onto players what they will be in three or four years' time because I think sometimes what you do is you create, if you like, a, a level that you then effectively criticise those players for if they don't reach. Whereas if, if, let's say, Jude Bellingham doesn't get any better, he's still really, really good at football and he will still be a brilliant player and it'll still be an incredible career if he stays at this level. And I think there is a risk in projecting onto him the idea that his improvement will be linear, that he'll continue to, to get better and better all the time. But that that question is being asked and I think that tells you something about that. And I think you're right as well. There's something about the way that he plays that I think stands out. The fact that he's tall, the fact that he's elegant, the fact that he seems to stride through midfield and, and it seems to be both technically and physically superior mm. to, to a lot of the players around him has really, really made him stand out. Has his confidence surprised you? I mean, it's the kind of confidence I see in, in top players. It's almost an arrogance in a way and, and yeah. an absolute inner belief that I am seriously good. Yeah, and I think that was expressed a little bit in. Well, I mean, it's, I know it's a it's an ongoing thing with him. This is just the way that he celebrates the goals. That 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 thing of standing in front of the fans and standing there with his arms wide. I confess, obviously, to not having seen a huge amount of him at Dortmund, so not really being aware of of that side of things. And so when you see him score at San Mamés, and for those who don't know, San Mamés Athletic Club's ground is is known in Spain as the cathedral. There is no stadium in Spain that is as kind of immediately iconic or is immediately redolent of history and this idea that you respect this place, right? The fact that it's called the cathedral, you respect this place. And he stands there, arms wide, and you think, <laughs> all right then, <laughs> you know, you're not worried. He's at the altar with his arms wide. You're not worried about this. And, and I think that that kind of, at the risk of over-symbolizing a celebration, that I think gave us this idea that, okay, here's someone who says, yeah, it's right that I'm here. It's right that I'm in control. It's right that I stand above. And I think when we've watched these games, there's a, there's a deference now to him, even from really good players, even within his own team. And I think there is very definitely that that borderline arrogance that says this guy is 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 totally at ease with this. Mm. I remember playing at Summer Mess myself a, a few times. In fact, one one of the big um, kind of breaking points in, in terms of um, the Barcelona fans. Except to me was a, was a one on one out with the goalkeeper and we won one nil and I dinked it over the keeper. But you're right that that place what, to play the atmosphere was uh, absolutely uh, incredible. But he seems unfazed by anything. Um, it's also interesting I think that at Real Madrid he's almost playing well he's playing like a ten isn't he um, as he did with England um, as well and um, at Dortmund he was more of a six or an eight. So it's it's interesting that he, he's so good going forward, which is is perhaps the thing that's taken some people by surprise because yeah. he did look like originally a kind of box-to-box -box midfielder, Brian Robson-esque. I've, I've been struck by that as well. Um, again, saying this without the expertise of having him watched, watched him repeatedly at Dortmund, but you get that story, that lovely story from, from when he was a kid at Birmingham, the idea that they gave him the number 22 shirt because this was a 10 who could be a 4 and an 8 as well and you add 4, 8 and 10 up and my maths <laughs> isn't great, but I believe that makes 22. He comes to Real Madrid, he gets the number 5 shirt, which, is, which of course was Zidane's shirt, albeit 5 is not a particularly redolent number, but is an answer. And Ancelotti decides to play him as a proper 10. Now, obviously, mm. this is conditioned in part 
by the fact that they didn't get Mbappé, in part by the fact that Karim Benzema left early. So they're playing with two forwards who are not centre-forwards, with Vinicius and, and, and Rodrigo, who kind of open up and allow that extra midfielder to come through. It's conditioned by the fact that Ancelotti looks at his squad and thinks, I've got loads of great midfielders, so how do I get them all on the pitch? In part, it's by moving to from a three-man midfield to a diamond where Belling's at the top. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've watched games this year at times and thought, I'd quite like him to cover a bit more of the pitch, to be involved a little bit further back, to be able to maraud through the middle a little bit more. But he's been played close to the goalkeeper. Uh, he's been played very close to the area. It's it's really working. You look at the five goals he scored in La Liga and all of them, well, all of them are your kind of goals. right? All of them are strikers' goals. All of them are goals Tap-ins, of the player. You, to describe them. Well, I was Tap-ins. going to describe them in terms of intelligence, <laughs> positioning, finishing ability. Beauty- but if you like, beautifully done, sir. If you like, I can say they're all terrible goals that were tapped in and very There's easy. There's no such thing as a terrible goal and they all count <laughs> the same exactly <laughs> and, and actually if you look at them there has definitely been an element of that I don't think any of them are further out than a penalty spot I think a couple of them are right on the edge of the six yard box one of them is inside the six yard box in the 95th minute there is this awareness you you see the goal that he scored against Getafe and Lucas Vazquez comes inside and takes the shot from the edge of the area Madrid at this point I think had racked up 25 shots or something already this is about the worst of them it goes straight at the goalie and Bellingham is already running for the loose ball before Lucas has even shot. It's not a great shot. It's a relatively easy catch. He drops it and it's in theory an easy finish. But you look at the penalty area and obviously I don't know why I'm telling you this. This is something that you you, you understand better than anybody. You're, t- you're telling everybody this. That's yeah, okay, all good. Out. That's all, all right. And, and, and the people in the penalty area, no one else moves as quickly as him. No one else sees it as early as him. He's playing alongside Joselu, who is in theory the classic number nine. And he gets to it before Chaselu does. And, and he actually talked after the game, Bellingham, and I thought it was quite interesting about how this is this is practice. This is this is mental training. This is teaching yourself to see that moment. And I personally think that in terms of his overall contribution to the game, maybe he will end up playing deeper, particularly if Madrid sign Mbappe. But at the moment, that roll off the forward, certainly in numerical terms, is working brilliantly. Uh, it certainly is. Sid, I, I saw his, I think it was his first press conference at, at Real Madrid and um, he said some nice things about you, didn't he? He says, I know you, I'm a big fan of Sid. Did, uh, be honest, did that make you feel good? I, I, I was convinced he'd got, it was a case of mistaken identity, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't. He had no idea who it was in the room. Um, <laughs> it was quite embarrassing, yeah. He said he was a big fan for those that perhaps um, didn't see that. I want to go on to, um, you talked about the obsession actually like with, with the Ballon d'Or. Do you think, that's the case in Spain because of the Ronaldo-Messi thing over the, the last 15 years or so. I think that's that's enhanced it and I think that's deepened it, but I think it goes back much further. I remember having a conversation with Michael Owen about this when Michael Owen came to Real Madrid and, and one of the key reasons, and I, I promise I'm not exaggerating this, I would say possibly the single most important reason that Real Madrid went for Michael Owen was because he was a Ballon d'Or winner. Because there was this sense that this is the definition of who is the best player in the world. Bear in mind that you look at that Galactico era, it really mattered to Real Madrid that Figo won the Ballon d'Or and then Zidane won the Ballon d'Or and Ronaldo won the Ballon d'Or. This was, if you like, the the, the, the objective measure of who the best player in the world is at a time when it was a different guy each year before we got to Ronaldo and Messi and it was two guys for 15 years. And I remember speaking to Michael about it and Michael was saying that when he was at Liverpool, Gerard Houllier basically had to take him to one side and say, do you not realise how big this is? Because it wasn't a thing <laughs> in England. And, and, and that Houllier had to say to him, you know, from a continental point of view, this is really genuinely significant. And, and basically that convers- the reason I bring it up is that conversation was here in Spain when he was playing for Real Madrid and essentially then led to me saying... <laughs> This is everything here. <laughs> yeah, uh, to, to, to back up Julio, this is absolutely everything. Uh, Messi and Ronaldo won a lot of Ballon d'Ors. Um, is Spanish football missing them? 
Yes, of course. I think in the case of Messi, maybe a little bit more so. And and I don't mean that in, in terms of making Messi more significant than Ronaldo. I think I've, I think I mean that much more in terms of the way the departure happened, how, mm. how much more traumatic it seemed to be. And also that lingering kind of hope that was left there for a while. Yeah, but maybe he'll come back. So I think that kind of hurt more. I do think, though, that it's, I wouldn't say it's overcome, but I, I, I think it's We've gone, kind of gone past it now. Can you explain to our, our listeners that don't perhaps follow Spanish football quite as closely as, as, as we do, Sid, what happened with Barcelona? How did they get themselves in, in, into such a financial pickle, as, you, as we say? Uh, I suppose a combination of the perfect storm of mismanagement, of chasing, um, I, su- I suppose it's partly pride, chasing that need to be seen as the best. And in particular, I think you look at the moment in which they they lost Neymar and deciding that they absolutely had to do something about this. And they had 220 million euros in their pocket. So it's okay, we've got loads of money. And and it felt like they hadn't learned the lesson of history from the Luis Figo uh, saga. What happened with Luis Figo when he went to Real Madrid was Joan Gaspar, who you know very well, who was Barcelona's president at the time. Joan Gaspar had lost Figo. It's the first thing that happens to him as president of Barcelona and he thinks I need to make amends and he now says it himself I should have just said okay that's it he's gone we forget about it we'll deal with this with time instead he thinks well, I've got loads of money and it's desperate- where he went though wasn't it exactly a desperate <laughs> need to go and fix this now and to use his phrase I went onto the street with loads of money and when you go onto the street with loads of money and everyone knows you're going onto the street with loads of money the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to get robbed and that's basically what happened now it's not quite the same with the Neymar situation but I think they could have learned a lesson from that which is we've got 220 million euros they've just taken our best player off our second best player and not just that but Neymar was Barcelona's succession plan he was the guy that would then take over from Messi and it was supposed to be seamless that transition and so they go what do we do we've got to buy something and they went out and they bought Dembele and they bought Philip Coutinho and they massively paid over the odds for both of them. Now, could those two players have succeeded? Yes. And maybe we wouldn't be having part of this conversation, but they didn't. Then they go and spend 126 million euros on Antoine Griezmann. And this was money that was unsustainable, but they could just about get away with it for as long as they were continuing to generate and continuing to be successful. Then, of course, on top of those, if you like, you've got that structural difficulty, then you get the pandemic, which comes at exactly the wrong time. Now, I 100% here do not want to blame this on the pandemic because they had made this mess for themselves. But that was, if you like, the thing that made it properly collapse. And of course, there's nothing worse than having a massive financial crisis than everybody knowing you've got a massive financial crisis. And then, then your way out becomes even more difficult. And it was a difficult way out and it ended up being the way out that he didn't want for, for one Lionel Messi. Yeah, and, and that's that's the terribly sad thing about all of this, of course, is that you create a situation where where you can't deal with this financial problem. And essentially, the guy that has to go is the guy that officially has already gone because, of course, he hasn't got a contract because his contract was up that summer. And so you can't bring him in because the La Liga financial fair play rules mean that that it's effectively fair play in Spain to cut a very, very long and complex story short is applied in advance rather than after the event. You don't get fined for having broken the rules. You're not allowed to register players if you can't comply with them. So suddenly you've got Messi, who's officially a free agent, and the league says, well, actually, you can't get him in under these rules. And so you can't, if you can't get rid of those other players, you have to get rid of the one player who you absolutely would never, ever, ever want to get rid of. And this is one of the reasons why, I, I must admit, I find myself uh, lacking patience a little bit with this discourse that you get that sometimes says, well, Barcelona never paid for their financial mismanagement. 
I would say that losing Messi is a fairly heavy <laughs> price to pay for it. I, I would totally agree on that. Uh, can Lamasia save Barca? I mean, they're starting to a new generation of incredible young talent. It's going to have to, um, I, I think. Um, we've had the financial figures put out by La Liga today. Now it's worth pointing out that these are the figures that explain what has just happened rather than what will happen next. But for example, Barcelona's salary limit is officially at 270 million euros. Real Madrid is at over 700. That tells you something about the difference in they're in. Now, obviously, what Barcelona actually spend is already way over that 270. It's at 420 something, I think. So they're still having to reduce. Now, how do you do that? By bringing kids through that you don't have to pay transfer fees for, that you're not paying amortizations for, that in theory, at least to begin with, you pay relatively low salaries to, and that, that will be the way out. But for that to be a way out in football terms is one thing. For it to be a way out in financial terms, of course, only comes through sales of those players. And that's not really what anyone wants. No, particularly a club like um, Barcelona. It, it, it brings me to Lamine Yamal, only just turned 16, um, <laughs> s- starting for Barcelona, creating chances and creating goals, and then becomes the youngest player to play and score for Spain. He looks a bit special, doesn't he? He really does. And, you know, this goes back a little bit to what we were saying about Bellingham. I'm always uneasy about projecting onto yep. a player what he might become. I, I always feel like I don't want to be partly responsible for loading the pressure on him and maybe meaning that he doesn't succeed. And, you know, watching what's happened to Ansu Fati over the last few years, a guy who, by the way, I did load the pressure on in so much as I have any voice at all because I thought he was really, really special. But... When players play this well, the pressure is kind of built by them, by their own level of performance. And and he was fantastic for Spain. I think the context for this is important. I think he was partly called up for Spain this early because he has Moroccan heritage. And I think there was a risk that that Morocco would pick him. And I think Spain wanted to make sure they got him locked in early. Um, But he then went and played these two games and started against Cyprus. And admittedly, it's against Cyprus and Spain won the game very comfortably. But he's different and he's exciting. And I think he showed that he was worth a place in the side. I'm told 357 goals in 249 youth team games over the years for Barcelona. Honestly, I, I, I couldn't stand <laughs> that figure up for you, I'm afraid. That's it's quite a lot past, though, isn't so. it? It sounds great. It's, it's, it's quite a lot of, a lot of goals. Um, but he, he, plays, he plays on the right hand side, doesn't he? A little bit where Messi plays, of course. Yeah, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to do that to him. him (laughs) There's a lovely line from Bojan Bojan Krisic, who, who of course, was one of these players that everybody said is going to be Mm. the next big thing at Barcelona. Had extraordinary figures, talking of goal-scoring runs for the youth system. I think think top scorer of all time in Barcelona's youth system. And I remember interviewing him when he was towards the end of his career. He was talking about, you know, the pressure that was put on him and he actually suffered anxiety attacks at the very start of his career. And he said... What I thought was a really interesting line, he said, people talk about my career as being a disappointment and saying I didn't achieve um, what, what, what should have been achieved in this career. He said, but this depends on what career do you want? What career are you measuring my career against? And if you're measuring my career against Messi's, well, of course it was a failure. And I suppose <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the pressure exactly incumbent upon us now and incumbent, I suppose, on Barcelona, on Spain and, and on Yamal himself and everyone around him. Do not measure yourself against this guy. No, no, no definitely don't do that. Um, let's have a little breather. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Rest is Football uh, with, well, just me, Gary Lineker, uh, this week in terms of our, our usual hosts. But I have um, here with me Spanish football expert and uh, co-host of the Spanish football podcast, Sid Lowe. And Sid, I want to talk about why do you think Spain produces so many really good Coaches, not players, yeah. and players as well, obviously. But coaches, we've got you know we've got a number of them in in the Premier League at the moment. Um, some of them at really big jobs, like obviously Arteta at Arsenal, Pep, of course, at, at City, um, Emery uh, as well, and um, Lopetegui's just gone from Wolves. So, why do you think it is? I think there are loads of of different elements that feed into this, and and allow me to reduce this this kind of talent pool as well slightly, and and talk about another phenomenon which then expands into Spanish coaches. Go ahead. Guipúzcoa is the smallest province in Spain. It's smaller than Dorset, and it provided the Premier League with Unai Emery, Julian Lopetegui, who admitted is now gone, and Donny Iraola, and Mikel Arteta. Juan Melillo is from Guipúzcoa, and so is Xavi Alonso. We're talking about six absolutely elite managers from a province, as I say, smaller than Dorset. It's it's absolutely <laughs> tiny. So. Some of what I'm going to give you as an answer is is partly because I've been trying to actually answer the question of what it is that this province does. And I think a lot of it is you can extrapolate it to Spain. In part, it's about the participation levels anyway. I think it's partly about the nature um, of football in Spain as as at the risk of kind of sounding overblown, being a bit more thoughtful, a bit more about technification, a bit more about tactical awareness, a bit more about, about understanding kind of the mechanics and and that makes it slightly different from football in other countries. I think it's also about the processes of the development of youth team players going through those kind of ideas and also the development of coaches and the idea that this is what makes uh, a coach. I think you can see it in numbers as well. The the number of clubs where, where coaching is seen as if you like a vocation and a profession and something you do from a technical point of view, even at a relatively low level of clubs. Um, I think it also tells you something about, I suppose, the the economic power of, in, in this particular case, the economic power of the Premier League. In other words, it's a natural place for them to go to. So there's, if you like, a what would you call it, kind of an export culture 
as well as as well as a coaching culture. Uh, I think there are lots of lots of those kind of elements. I think in terms of the way that, that football is played here, which begins or used to begin, I think actually this is changing with small sided five aside on concrete courts with a ball that doesn't bounce, and I think that changes the way you understand the game. Um, I think that's changing because they're moving much more towards seven aside football now, much more towards synthetic astroturf pitches, which actually is a is a change. But I think all of those elements come together and I think also it's about opportunity and and this is a while ago now best part of I would say 10 or 15 years ago but talking to a Spanish coach and asking him about the desire to go and coach in England and 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 I came at it from a I suppose a more positive point of view saying you know one of the things about England is maybe coaches get more time there's more patience obviously the money is is good as well and I remember him saying and it really struck stayed with me this will explain now why I haven't named him him saying yeah and also the fact that our preparation, our kind of technical ability, our turning this into a profession that's about study puts us in a position where if we go to England where the culture is still not that yet, puts us in a position where we are, put bluntly, much, much better. You know, the, 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 the coaching culture in England has shifted over the last 10 years, but it hasn't maybe gone as far yet. And this goes no. through the federation and it goes through the clubs at Sp- in Spain. Pep Guardiola. It was wasn't it? Pep Guardiola. It wasn't. It wasn't Pep Guardiola, no. Who was it? I, I'm you can't say. You. Oh, okay, you can't because, say. Don't no, worry. I, I'm just I'm very conscious that, that implicitly what he was saying was English coaches are rubbish. Well, I, he's, got, he's got a point. We were talking on the podcast um, just a couple of days ago after the England game and wondering why this country has not produced that many top level coaches. It, I, I guess it's starting to, isn't it? And these are cultural yeah. things and, and these are changes in the way that you work. And I remember I went to see a, a friend of mine who was getting his coaching badge with the Welsh FA about a year or so ago and, and being very conscious talking to the coaches of coaches, the people teaching coaches of the way in which the game has shifted, the way in which they conceptualise what it is they do has shifted, that it is much more technical now, that there is much more combination. Those kind of phrases that maybe sound a bit highfalutin, but ideas of numerical super priorities and overloads and, and positional play. And that has shifted and that culture is changing. And it's been changed, I think, by Pep Guardiola coming in at Manchester City. I remember when he first started and everyone's going, you can't play that way in English football. It's never going to work. And, it, and, and boy, has he proved us all wrong. And now everybody's kind of playing that way, turning a little bit more in that direction anyway. There's certainly, and I think this is probably true of any pursuit, not just sport, but there's, there's a cross-fertilisation, isn't there? And there's, there's, there's a process of, of, of mixing. And I think we, we talked about this a, a lot, didn't we, over the last 20 years and the kind of the, the shift in English football with the arrival of foreign players who don't just bring a different... Um, um, level of player, but they bring a different type of player, a different uh, approach to training, a different approach to, to maintenance, to, to looking after yourself and so on. And then that creates a wave. And then there's a second wave with coaches. And I think that is filtering through now as well. And, and the whole thing, I guess, in, in, enriches us. And, and that it is about different examples and different ideas and, and, and bringing those things together to, to create, I suppose, a synthesis of, of, of all of those different elements. You've interviewed um, all these players, all these managers, and over the years, Xabi Alonso is he? Did it automatically for you? Did you go? He's going to be a coach. Do you ever feel that yeah, as a journalist? Yeah, you can tell absolutely. with players which ones are going in that direction. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I say absolutely, not necessarily with some of them, but there are some that you say, okay, and and Xabi Alonso is one. And, Just and for Mas- those that that don't know, um, he's at he's at Bayer Leverkusen at the moment. Um, they had a good season last year. They went a long way in the European competition, and they've I think I think three wins from three starts yep. um, this season. 
and playing very nice football as well. Uh, playing very, very nice football. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, you see it with some, you don't see it with all of them, but, but certainly Xavi Alonso was, was definitely one of them. Javier Mascherano was one as well. The, the, admittedly, I'm, I'm always nervous about making an equivalency between the eloquence with which they talk about it and their then capacity to actually do it. But you can hear, I think, sometimes in the in the capacity to explain, in the capacity to kind of cut through some of the detail, to explain the nuance that, that's really there. I remember interviewing Xavi Alonso and, and actually effectively turning the interview into into kind of a almost a footballing manifesto based on something that really struck me when I listened to it back. And it didn't strike me quite as much during it, but listening to it back, it dawned on me that he'd only used... I think something like two or three words in English during the conversation in Spanish. And of course, what tends to happen is the the words you use in another language are the ones that culturally, there's a reason why you use them in another language, or maybe because the direct equivalent doesn't exist in, in your language. Um, and one of them, I think, was Poppy, because he was talking about the the, the controversy over whether or not players should wear poppies. Ah. And, and, you know, there's no idea. What does this even mean in Spanish? So, so Poppy. But the one that did it was tackling. And he tackling. talked. And he went on, yeah. yeah. And he went on to talk was about it entradas now, or well, yeah, uh, you can use entradas. Yeah, and Spanish so actually tend to use tackling, tackling. They tend to tackling, borrow it yeah. a little bit from us. Well, they the used same. to. I, I used to. I quite amused when I was on the pitch, and they, it was like corner. Yeah, um, I know it's Sakadi Skinner as well, but yeah. that, you know, and, and there were one or two other things that there were obviously English words. Your manager would have been a Mister, right? So it's Mister, always mister. a Mister, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and. Offside was offside and stuff. Yeah. Now those things change with time, but but tackling is, in fairness, is kind of part of the Spanish lexicon. But what Xavi did in that interview was to talk about the idea of the concept of tackling. And he talked about how he was really struck how in England, tackling was seen as a central part of your game, as a, as a, as a, as a kind of a quality. And he said he would pick up the match day programme and there would be an interview with some youth team kid at Liverpool and say, what are you good at? Tackling and shooting. And now Xavi was, by the way, was prepared to admit that he could be wrong on this, but he was saying, let me explain my conceptualisation of football. And he said, in my conceptualisation of football, tackling is not a thing you should be necessarily aspiring to. Now, it's, 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 it's a recourse uh, something you would you need mm. at times, something you would need to take recourse to. You know? At times you will need this, but it shouldn't be something that you're aspiring to in terms of how you construct the game, how you build the game, how you play the game. And and this interview ended up being this kind of like manifesto of what it means to play football. And at that moment you think, all right, there's a coach. Now, obviously you can add with Xavi uh, that, that he has been with some of the greatest minds of football in football. Now, mm. I don't mean me, obviously here from this interview, but you know, he's, <laughs> he's worked under Rafa Benitez. He's worked with Mourinho. He's worked with Ancelotti. He's worked with Guardiola. He's worked with John Toshak was the coach that was his coach when he first broke through at Real Sociedad. And he's taken things from all of them. And I think if you look at his career path, even for Xavi, who actually towards the end of his career wasn't convinced he wanted to coach, because the other thing that comes with it is all the pressure, but that those kind of intellectual building blocks were all being put into place. And what, what you're talking about, it's interesting to use the word tackling or, or, you know, whether it's a foul, because no one did the tactical foul better than Xabi Alonso, <laughs> did they? Uh, except possibly someone like Rodri. Yeah, it's another exactly. Spanish. People think it's all nicey-nicey Spanish football. But I re when I played, I mean, way back, it was really incredibly physical. They used to just kick lumps out of you. I mean, it's, it's, the game was transformed. I suppose, do you think the start of that was possibly Cruyff? 
Yeah, but there's no doubt that emotionally, I, I think tactically in the way the game is played, but emotionally what Cruyff symbolises for Barcelona is is a revolutionisation of the game as a player when he arrives the first time in 73, but then again as a manager when when he comes to a club. Um, I know it wasn't particularly good for you, but there's this, there's, this, <laughs> there's, this, there's this sense that Cruyff changed that and changed the, the concept of football and that it went beyond Barcelona. Obviously, it's Barcelona where they most cling to him, but it went beyond Barcelona. Now, I can almost feel the Real Madrid fans kind of grinding their teeth at the moment because that Quinta del Buitre Real Madrid team with Buchagueno and Michel and so on was also an eminently technical team. And it and actually came before them. good team, unfortunately. I lost all three years to them. And they won <laughs> five, five, five league titles in a row, an extraordinary team. And they and, and they came pre-dream team. So there are, there are origins there even pre-Cruyff, but I think Cruyff in terms of, if you like, the the thought process and the idealisation and the creation of a, I suppose, a, a foundational myth, if you like, Cruyff is, is, is absolutely vital to that, yeah. La Liga, whenever I go um, to Spain and watch watch football there, which has been more frequent because oh, I've been working for La Liga for a couple of years now doing um, TV and stuff, I think there's a competitiveness about La Liga versus the Premier League. Do you feel that yeah. living there? Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know whether I'm getting that from Spain or I'm getting that from England. I, I've, I, I genuinely have lost count of the number of times when I've been told, basically, the Spanish League's rubbish. Why are you doing this? It's a farmer's league. I mean, <laughs> I, farm- I mean, I mean, do they realise how many European trophies Spanish clubs have won in the last 15 years? <laughs> and, and this, exactly, and this shouldn't, shouldn't prevent us from seeing some of the flaws in the Spanish League. It shouldn't prevent us from talking about those economic imbalances. And you can look at the... The latest transfer window, for example, in Spain, I think, are the sixth league in the world in terms of the amount of money spent on transfers. And and that's problematic and it's worrying. It's not the only measure of good football. But as you say, you then come back to European competition, you think, yeah, they're doing all right, really, for a bunch of farmers. Yeah, they're doing pretty well. What, what games are you watching this weekend, Sid? I think I will be at, actually this weekend. I'm quite lucky. I've got three in Madrid. I'll be at Rayo Vallecano, at Getafe <laughs> and at uh, Real Madrid. I love how many games of football you go to. It's too many. It's, it is. Uh, but it's, it's good. not. It's, it can never be too much football. You can't have too much football. Absolutely right. Yeah. And um, let me thank you um, for coming on. It's been fascinating. And uh, hopefully, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it. Cheers, Sid. Thanks. Thank you.